I was getting coffee at O'Henry's one day, and uh, the person who was at the cash register said, you're not from here, are you? <laughs> I guess it was just because of the, the accent or lack of. And uh, I said, no. I said, I uh, grew up in, in western New York, and the last 14 years have been in San Diego. And she just wrinkled up her nose and said, all those pagan places. Um, and I, I didn't respond uh, to that one. Um, but I would suggest to you that the South is just as pagan as San Diego. And maybe more difficult to share the gospel than in New York City. Um, my sense in both of those places, because the last um, four years we were involved in a kind of church plant or a church redo um, in Manhattan, was that Christians have this sense that they've got to be in worship on Sunday. That there's just a sense of the rhythm of the week, that if you're part of a church, at least that was our experience at First Press in San Diego and then um, Central Press in New York, was that people had a certain intense need to be in worship and to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and I don't sense that need here as much. Now, that's just uh, that's a highly subjective um, take. But Tim Keller says you've got to convince Christians in the South that they're not Christians in order to evangelize them, um, that there's something so nominal and so Christendom-oriented, and as Soren Kierkegaard would say, kind of a Christless Christianity. you got Christianity, but you don't have Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're evangelizing those that are in the church and in the habit of religion, but don't really follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a, there's a tension there. Um, but your grandfather would be still shocked. Um, not only is it post-Christian, the West, but it is post-biblical Christianity. I'm concerned that the word doesn't really shape our Christian faith. It's more our culture shapes our Christian faith. And there we get the tension. Victor. I don't know if you all remember, a few years ago, Richard Buse, um from England came and spoke at the Dean's class. He took John Stott's place at All Souls, one mm -hmm. place. And he was preaching, um, not preaching, mean, he was teaching off a text uh, where Paul's at the, uh, say, Aragopolis. Acts 17. And um, what he said, Buse said, we're not in a post-Christian time, we're in a new pre-Christian era. And he said we ought to be encouraged by that because here's the framework for how you speak to people that are pre-biblical, pre-Christian. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, that was actually quite encouraging because it's so easy to get down into, you know, we've come to something more horrible than there's ever been before when in fact we're just back. Back to the future. And only making the New Testament more and more relevant to us because we're there. Uh, really good point. Certain challenges, though, that are different from approaching someone who's not a Christian, who doesn't claim to be Christian, who it's new, mm -hmm. than to someone who's been a Christian their whole life, but operating under a wrong theology, so to speak. 
or a lack of yeah a lack of a taught theology either taught through life circumstances Mm -hmm. or just because their church was teaching a different theology you know the a plus b equals c or whatever you want to call it you know Mm -hmm. you do this i do that right together we'll get there um, or whatever it is. It, it's a much different challenge when you're speaking to someone who feels 100% they're a Christian and they're they're right on. And at the same time, they're treating you like you're wrong, maybe because you have a, a, a belief that you feel is rooted in the gospel. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's some friction there. Um, and and you're probably implying that it's harder. It's much harder. Yeah. For me, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we're doing to our youth. To add, uh, to um, these school Bible studies and these Bible study leaders who really aren't rooted in the faith and the word. And the, I feel like that's the happening good, to my the children. feel-good Christianity. So we're inoculating them. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, if they won't go to mm-hmm. church, but they'll do this, that's okay. They're getting some church. Right. Are they getting the right, right message? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why it may actually be easier on the coast because you've got the clarity. Yeah, just in general, it's easier on a blank slate, not having to unlearn mm-hmm. bad habits from somebody who's convinced that those habits are not bad. But then you've got the shock value also that takes place in this kind of situation. So you're evangelizing, you're sharing the gospel, you're telling them what Jesus Christ has done, you're talking about that sin need, that guilt need, you're inviting them, come as you are. Um, And then all of a sudden, a couple months later, they hear the church talk about a biblical sexual ethic. And it's like the other shoe drops. You mean tell me that the Christian faith doesn't just allow for consensual sex among adults, that that that's wrong? Um, You mean this church doesn't really encourage um, gay marriage? Um, Oh, we just found that all the time in San Diego. You're, you're leading with a good gospel text, which doesn't really have any reference to sexual ethics. People are coming, they're responding, they join a small group, and then they hear within the small group Christians talking about what they think is the premarital sex is not a good idea, that uh, sexual union is something to be saved for that sacramental, uh, permanent, exclusive communion with God. How old-fashioned are you? How out of date are you? Um, so you, there's there's constantly this kind of cultural clash that I think takes place. And um, so a precursor for evangelism today is actually, I, I mean, it's I think it's hard to almost distinguish between evangelism and edification within the body of Christ. You're kind of constantly working both these angles all the time. And... Uh, on some Sundays, you wish you could say so much more in order to give context for the gospel that you're sharing. Well, this is our wrap-up session. And First uh, Peter chapter 4 is, uh, I think, what wraps up First Peter's Christ for culture perspective. 
That preposition for me um, is really important, that little word for, Christ for culture. Uh, Richard Niebuhr wrote a book, Christ in Culture, many, many years ago in the 50s, uh, a classic in which he gave several categories for understanding the relationship between Christ and culture. Uh, if you grow up in a narrow-minded, fundamentalist, us-against-them kind of context, you, he would classify that as Christ against culture. That's been the prevailing mode in which you have understood that it's Christ and then the world. And um, these two are antithetical to one another. There's certainly dimensions of that. but Or Christ above culture. If you've grown up Roman Catholic and have the sense that um, kind of the pinnacle of culture, uh, the best of culture, is what the church represents and what seeks to encourage. That's maybe a Christ above culture idea. And trying to be working in such a way as to draw everybody up into that aboveness. Uh, rather than against or above or of, I would choose the preposition for. And I think First Peter is a good rendition of that. Christ for culture. And, and it kind of ties in with your observation. I think that Christians um, should be so good in culture that the world has nothing to fear from them that there's a sense in which um, the world may identify that we don't fit and that we're um, kind of at times difficult to understand, but nothing to fear. No anger, resentment, bitterness, uh, no kind of retaliatory response, no use of the weapons of the world. Okay. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 1, it's there on your worship folder, not worship folder, study guide, sorry. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Notice the military term, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And they're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless wild living anymore. And they heap abuse on you but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Oh, that was written 2,000 years ago. The end of all things is near. It's interesting in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter says, don't question the Lord's timing on his coming. And the reason we don't question his timing on his coming is because God is merciful, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to him. 
Now, you may feel like that's not a 2,000-year-worth answer. But remember, what's being judged here is the mercy of God. And that is a pretty merciful response. We can't understand the mind of God, perhaps, on why this has taken as long as it is, and why the apostles felt it was going to be so imminent. Except for the fact that we ought to live with that sense of imminence, that sense of immediacy. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. <coughs> it certainly ties in very well to the Luke 18 parable we just, most of us just heard. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. There's a benediction. Uh, halfway through uh, the chapter 4, he's reached a certain point where doxology kind of breaks out. That kind of person described here is not a person to be feared, is it? Um, and Peter is writing into a culture that you, I mean, we could argue is worse than our culture um, in terms of freedoms, in certainly in terms of prosperity and success and vocational opportunity and um, very much subject to the rule of Rome. And so when he uses military language, he's comparing the kind of way of the world with the way of Christ. On your right column there, Jesus-style militancy. The apostolic commitment to combat readiness, combat readiness is intentional, but instead of being armed with the weapons of the world, Peter calls for acquiring a Christ-like mindset that's willing to suffer for the good. A very interesting quote from Karl Barth on that militancy, on that sense of revolt, that sense of standing in opposition to the culture. It's italicized there in the right column. The militant revolt demanded of Christians. So how should we be vis-a-vis -vis culture? What mindset should we have? What attitude of heart should we take? This distinguishes it from all other kinds of revolts. Is not directed against people, this revolt, is not directed against people, not even against the host of unbelievers, false believers, and the superstitious, nor even against the wicked. There was a, uh, my son has not talked a lot about politics with um, our uh, grandson, Liam, who's uh, seven and in second grade, but the kids are talking about it. They live in Seattle. And the children are talking, and Liam brought it up about you know what the kids were saying, and they had a discussion discussion about character and discussion about personality. And uh, Jeremiah, our son, was talking to Liam about Trump. And he finished the dialogue 
and Liam said, no one is beyond redemption. Now, you got a seven-year-old that has been talking about character of the politicians, and he's, well, but nobody's beyond redemption. And Jeremiah was a little blown away by his son's comment. It's not like they had been talking that. Nobody is beyond redemption, which really is the Christian response with any scenario, with any description, with any character profile that points away from Christ. Well, yeah, but nobody's beyond redemption. Second part of that uh, that paragraph and the quote, in terms of their commission, even though they will sometimes clash with all kinds of people and discouraging it, discharging it, they rebel and fight for all. And in the last resort, precisely for those whom they may clash. Christ for culture. Oh, that is so hard. I think it is so hard not to lead with resentment or anger or bitterness um, in tone, in style, in manner. But Peter is, and he could be basing on the culture here. He could be talking about just how bad this culture is from both the sophisticated, civilized Roman badness and its conquering of Turkey or the animistic, spiritist kind of culture that many of these rural people lived in. He could have been really made a case about how bad this culture was. He doesn't go there at all. He doesn't waste his time with that. His focus is on how good Christians can be. And so Bard's quote, I think, ties in really well. Even the unbeliever, the false believer, the superstitious, the wicked, they're not the enemy. They're not beyond redemption. They're not beyond the good news. They're not the enemy. Peter extols its Peter extols its virtues. Whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Wow. You know, to believe is to obey, Bonhoeffer said, and to obey is to believe. Life really come as you are, but you will not remain as you were. Life really has changed. There's a radical, every sphere impact in the life of the Christian. Defining issues is the second italicized heading there. Peter leverages the pagan lifestyle against new life in Christ. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans do. Can any of you identify with that? Or have you had such a Christianized past that you can't? Um, I'll tell you, to walk through a co-ed dorm on a modern university campus makes me wonder how anything academic gets done, but it also creates an impression of a milieu that must be exceedingly difficult for Christians to survive in, I would think. But Peter here is leveraging that pagan lifestyle as bad as it was is the contrast to how good it can be because of Jesus Christ. 
The contrast between pagan choices and Christian living, easy to see, costly to experience in the first century Asia. Um, but the modern pantheon of gods is really fairly different from the Greek pantheon that Paul was addressing in Acts 17. I described some of that here. The modern pantheon of gods and goddesses rivals that of the ancient Greek pantheon. Peter refers to detestable idolatry, implying that the choice between right and wrong, good and evil, was clear, straightforward. But the danger of modern idolatry is that it is subtle, soft, and deceptively safe. When does technology become an idol? Uh, Steve Jobs blended Eastern spirituality with Western materialism. And he captured it in his icon of the bitten apple. He reversed the fall, inviting us to bite into the apple so that we would be as knowledgeable as God. He turned his technology into an idol. It's not just technology for him. Now, it can be for you. And I don't mean that you have to cover up the apple on your device. Um, but that's what it means. That's what it means. That's what it meant to him. I'm reversing the fall. I'm inviting you to bite into the apple. When does sports become an idol. And I Andrew referenced that in his sermon. Um, when does the fan become a congregant? Um, and when does the stadium become a shrine? Um, when does it really become the kind of all-absorbing passion that ought to be reserved for, for life, for mission, for worship, for family? but it becomes the escape substitute for that because we don't know how to work it out. We don't know how to experience that. I spent um, several years with a group of about 10 people forging a statement on a Christian perspective on sports. Um, and there were one or two of us coming from the theological angle um, the rest were just fine Christians in kinesiology and athletics and coaching, high school, college, university level. And, and we met. We met in Charlotte uh, for several days, and we met at Calvin College uh, for several days. Um, it was wonderful to be with these Christian sports-oriented athletic director-type people and their concern for from children on up to professional sports, how does Christ speak into that culture? Um, and we forged a perspective. I think some of them wanted it to be a movement. It didn't, it didn't fly as a movement, but it was great work. And I thought in experiencing this, boy, I wish, I wish real estate agents did this. I wish bankers did it. I wish the Nurses Association did it. I mean, there is a Christian Medical and Dental Society. Um, uh, you know, 
if Christians would understand, well, what is it that we can be about in being salt and light in our culture? Um, really taking into... Um, you know, I remember doing a Christian medical and um, ethics class um, with doctors and nurses in Bloomington, Indiana. And one doctor, a specialist, um, his point in the class, this is vivid to me, was um, I never really have to deal with ethics. Most of my day uh, has nothing to do with the Christian moral stance. I just do my medicine. And part of our course together was to show that everything he did had to do with ethics. Everything he did had to do with how you relate to the patient, how you relate to your staff, how, how, how you understand the, even the rhythms of your life. Uh, everything has to do with how Christ would have you be. Everything has that ethical impact to it. Um, let's turn the page um, and get these next few verses to finish chapter uh, 4. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. A real cruciform standard of living is what Peter projects here, that if you really major on the goodness that Christ would have you have, you're going to run into conflict. Accept that. Submit to it. Christ is your example. Second paragraph, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ... You are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal, and then as a meddler. As a busybody entering into stuff you don't belong in. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament, meddler. Um, uh, it makes me think of the beatitude where Jesus says, you shall not kill, and nor should you even hold any hate in your heart for your brother. <laughs> that, that range, and in a way that range is being described here uh, by Peter. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. It's like the second grade, uh, not the second grader, the two-year-old who says, worry about yourself. Um, in a way, Peter is saying, instead of being preoccupied with the world and how bad it is, be preoccupied about how we are as a household of faith, as the body of Christ, as the church. It's time for judgment to begin with us. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And it's hard for the righteous to be saved. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I, Paul, uh, Peter is not in any way diminishing the, the great gap between uh, the world and the church. 
if you just take your eye over to the right column in the italicized version about a paragraph down, what causes suffering? Uh, under that, I have several, I'm trying to be practical here. I'm trying to visualize what Peter is saying with what we would be experiencing. Consider the believer, and these are all true. These are all coming out of pastoral conversations. Consider the believer who is pursuing a PhD in English literature at a state university. He feels increasingly ostracized as his Christian identity becomes more widely known in the department. He believes that there is a meta-narrative in history, and he's mocked for it. Um, he believes that uh, literature should be respected in terms of the author's statement rather than reader's um, interpretation, criticism. He believes that. And then his gay advisor in his 80s wants him to sleep with him. And his PhD is on the line. He's the, the advisor and he refuses you know, it is one of the most difficult areas to get a doctorate in today. English literature. Because the culture in our universities is highly antithetical to what Christians believe. This particular person ended up with his PhD and is teaching today. Um, but that's what he faced. Imagine the believer who's ridiculed by his friends for not smoking pot. He doesn't wish to make a big deal about it, but when pressed, he makes it clear that he doesn't want to get high, but his peers won't let it go, and they think that it has something to do with his faith. And so they begin mocking him for his faith, and they take bets as to see who can get him to smoke first. Picture the believer who recently graduated with an MBA and landed a position in a major corporation. She is grateful for her work and likes what she does, but she faces constant pressure to make work her total life. Uh, this just is the New York City syndrome. Um, scores of young people, really, who have done very well academically, who land a good job in a bank, an investment Wall Street, um, insurance, and they're basically become slaves to the corporation, at least for a certain number of years. Um, we routinely had people go to work before church at 10 o'clock and then immediately after church go back to work in New York. It was fairly routine for people. Uh, the 60, the 80-hour-a-week uh, job. In this particular case, uh, uh, the woman had made a point when she was hired that her Christian faith was important to her and worship on Sunday morning was a priority. And yet she was constantly being called in Sunday morning to finish projects before Monday. And when she refused, her supervisor said, and, and knowing the refusal would have been very polite and very calm and very courteous and respectful, her supervisor said, well, then don't blame me if you don't get promoted. 
Consider the believer, next paragraph, a police officer who struggles over whether he should attend the bachelor party weekend for one of his non-Christian friends on the force. The expectation of a drunken orgy is all but certain with fellow officers bragging about what they're going to do in Las Vegas. Does he go? Does he go? He doesn't want to be thought of as holier than thou. He wants to be part of the group for salt and light purposes. He ended up not going. He just didn't see his way through the weekend without um, ending up being classified as holier than thou anyways um, by what he wouldn't do. To be the faithful present Christ calls us to be is to be bound to be set apart as resident aliens, as strangers in our home culture, A real challenge. Now, does all of this help in any way in the election process for you? I agree. I agree. Not to lament would be um, an indifference that would be uh, illogical, ununderstandable. Mm-hmm. I think it's so interesting now how um, <clears throat> in the current presidential campaign, how much of a judgment, you know, in certain circles, if you don't vote for or don't express your support of somebody, you're obviously not a Christian. And if you enter another circle, you might be seen as deplorable. You know, I mean, all kinds of variations, but it's mm-hmm. amazing how this particular election, there's a big stream of, you know, you're not godly if you don't support X, Y, Z. And I hear it on both sides. Mm-hmm. Both sides call the other evil to me. Mm-hmm. At least in my face, I've been told whichever way you go, you're evil. Because both candidates are evil in their in in people's eyes and their own way, and from their where they're coming from. Does that make sense? I'm not saying from a gospel perspective. I'm saying from people's opinions. Mm-hmm. People on both sides think the other one is evil for this reason or that reason, and so it's it's a it, everybody's so divided and the chasm is so large. That's, I think, the thing that discourages me is that it's so much you're wrong, and not only you're not wrong, right, you're not Christian, 
well, you're wrong, and you're not right, you're not Christian. And I'm hearing that on both sides, which is because we're taking bits and pieces. But do you ever do you, do you ever meet a person that seems to have come out of First Peter? I haven't met other. It, that, I mean, I, I, don't I'm you think that's possible, though? We could all be coming out of First Peter. If we could. I mean, I've taken myself out of conversations. Because I've, I've said, you know, I don't think this is... Um, I, I think the Lord has got control of this election. Mm-hmm. He has sovereign power over all, including the outcome of this and even if the outcome is a form of judgment, you get the leaders you deserve. Absolutely, he has taken down kingdoms. Even if we keep moving toward the first century to clarify our witness, to sharpen our salt and light, even if that. Even if that. So whichever side you fall on, and you think it's doomsday if the other one wins, it could be judgment. Remember, we talked about Jacques Lou the French Christian sociologist who talked about the political illusion that we have maybe thought psychologically, logically, rationally that there's just too, we've given too much credit to politics in terms of really what will move and shape our life together. It is the God that's going to control too much power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they weren't worried about Caesar. Caesar was Caesar. To Caesar? You know, right? Yeah. I mean, that was just... Jesus never says anything about, really, what he could have said about how awful Rome was. He goes, the world is the world. The nations are the nations. And in a way, even takes unbelief and injustice and kind of throws it into that collective world, nations. So our concern is to call people out of the nations, call people out of the world into a relationship with Christ. And that's where the church, the church is in a way its own nation. That's another way of saying your citizenship is in heaven. And that the kingdom of God is different from the American dream. And this is a radically different identity for us in Christ. I think that's what Peter's saying. We need to feel that, I think, as a church, as a body of Christians, how radically different our identity is. For the sake of the world, Christ for culture. For the sake of the world, we need to have that. Well, i got to let you go. But let's pray. Lord God, thanks for this time together. I pray for my sisters and brothers in Christ that this week there would be ways that they see how they are salt and light in this world for healing, for health, for holiness. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together we pray. Amen.